Welcome to Episode 3, Part 1 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 7,500 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. This month's podcast features Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and Dr. David Gajewski, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania. In part one of this episode, they will discuss why hypothermia is important post-cardiac arrest, landmark studies in this area, and inclusion and exclusion criteria. Hello, and welcome back for another great podcast. Today, we will be discussing hypothermia for post-cardiac arrest patients with a return of spontaneous circulation. Each year, approximately 300,000 patients suffer cardiac arrest with a national average survival rate for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of only 5%, ranging from 3 to 16%. Of those that survive, 40% will never regain consciousness. And of those who do regain consciousness, one third will have irreversible cognitive deficits, with only 2% being neurologically intact. In the last 30 to 40 years of research, and despite many changes in ACLS protocols, essentially no real impact has been seen for neurological survival until recently with this therapy. It is an honor and a great pleasure that today we'll be talking with an expert on the subject of hypothermia with Dr. David Gajewski. Dr. David Gajewski is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania. He is the clinical director for the Center for Resuscitation Science, Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the director of Early Gold Directed Therapy Program for the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Hospital University of Pennsylvania. And David has published several articles on the subject. Actually, one was just recently accepted in resuscitation. Is that correct, David? Yes, we have a new article coming out in resuscitation very soon. We just had an article come out on lactate levels, serolactate levels in post-arrest patients in resuscitation. And had a recent article in Critical Care Medicine, this month's Critical Care Medicine, on the use of hypothermia in in-hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah, I just saw that. Well, first, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Now, why is hypothermia so important for post-cardiac arrest? So, hypothermia is really the first therapy that we've seen, as you pointed out, over the last 30 to 40 years, other than basic ICU care that has uh, changed the outcome of patients in, uh, with post-cardiac arrest syndrome. And the, the real issue here is that when someone has a period of no flow during an arrest or low flow because the no flow state's augmented by chest compressions and bystander CPR, and the patient is exposed to a period of ischemia, and then if they get return of spontaneous circulation, then they have a period of reperfusion. And both ischemia and reperfusion can produce a large number of injurious patterns and mechanisms 
in the body and all organs of the body, but the brain is especially sensitive to that period of ischemia and reperfusion because of its dependence on continuous oxygen delivery. So the biggest issue with post-arrest patients has been the anoxic encephalopathy that occurs from the period of ischemia and then the increased injury that comes with reperfusion. And hypothermia is almost perfectly tailored to treat that because it's a therapy that works through dozens of different modalities and dozens of different mechanisms that are related to the specific injury patterns that happen with ischemia and reperfusion. Yeah, I I often tell my residents, I compare and contrast hypothermia with a crush injury where the patient's been crushed for several hours and you know they have an ischemic event and then once the object is removed then there's a reperfusion injury that activate and I generally refer to the you know the evil cascades the reactive oxygen species the inflammatory cascade the mitochondrial dysfunction and hypothermia definitely slows down all those mechanism right correct and you know those those mechanisms you're talking about, many of them begin during the arrest itself, during the period of ischemia, low flow state. And then, as you're saying, they're amplified by the period of reperfusion, by endothelial dysfunction, mitochondrial dysfunction, and, and by lowering the body temperature down under probably a tipping point around 35 degrees or so, but that's still unclear and being sorted out by some ongoing studies. You can really blunt many of these mechanisms and give what used to be thought of as irreversible injury patterns a chance to actually recover. And so one of the things we've found out is the space, as we might say, between life and death is a little broader than we used to think of it as. And so people have a a lot more malleability and recoverability from these severe injuries if you provide the right therapy. Correct. There's lots of paper coming out on that. So in 2002, actually in February 2002, there were two trials, one by Bernard and all, and one from the ACA study group that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And basically both trials revalidated much older studies that hypothermia is neuroprotective from what we discussed in those mechanisms and as with significant improvements in survival and neurologically intact. I think those two landmark studies are important enough that do you mind going over some of the details of those two studies? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Stephen Bernard's in Melbourne, Australia and His study was a single center study done there, and it's an interesting study to dig into the details a little bit. It's a small study. It's around 78 patients, and it's a pseudo-randomized study. And so what does that mean? It means that the therapy was started in the pre-hospital setting by the EMS providers, and on odd days, if the patients were comatose and had return of spontaneous circulation after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from a shockable rhythm, so ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia, they get return of spontaneous circulation and then they're comatose. And there were a few other exclusion criteria, but if they qualified, then on odd days, the medics would start the cooling in the pre-hospital setting. And they would start it by 
taking off the person's clothes, exposing them to ambient temperature, and then they would put ice packs on them. And these are the kind of cooling ice packs that you can activate and put on a sprained ankle, for example. So pretty low technology. And then on even number days, if the patient qualified, they would just be transported to the emergency department where they would continue to get standard post-arrest care. And the goal of Dr. Bernard's study was to have the patients to a target temperature of 33 degrees Celsius within two hours of initiation of cooling. And there's a couple of things that I think are really important to emphasize here is the decision that someone was comatose was being made in the first minutes after cardiac arrest. So the person gets return of spontaneous circulation. The medic is deciding this is a person who's going to get cooling or this is a person who qualifies for the study. And so this is a quick decision about coma versus no coma. And it's really a decision about neurologic injury. So that's one important thing. The second important thing is that these are all ventricular fibrillation patients, rapid time to target temperature of 33 degrees, where they were kept for 12 hours and then they were rewarmed and they were assessed neurologically. The other important thing to remember about Dr. Bernard's trial is he, in addition to randomizing the patients in this pseudo-randomized way to hypothermia versus normal thermia, he also pursued a MAP, a mean arterial pressure of 90 to 100 in these patients. So higher than we would pursue, for example, with early goal-directed therapy for sepsis. And this may be a key to neurologic outcomes as well, because it's thought that the cerebral autoregulation is altered after a period of ischemia and reperfusion. And it may, in fact, be that we need a higher mean arterial pressure to maintain our cerebral perfusion pressure. So he used uh, epinephrine infusions to maintain this mean arterial pressure. And using this strategy, he had good neurologic outcomes in 49% of the therapeutic hypothermia patients versus 25% of those treated with standard therapy. And this was statistically significant, and it's a very large absolute reduction in poor neurologic outcomes, 24%. So that was the basic essence of the Bernard study from Australia. I just want to take one second to clarify the neurological outcome, because you know, some of my residents say, well, what does that mean? I, I think it's important in the Bernard study, if I'm correct, it's that they return back to either baseline or with some mild deficit, correct? Yes. Yeah, so they're basically dividing people into two groups. And it, you could view that as a CPC, cerebral performance category, one or two as the good outcomes, and then a CPC three, four, or five as bad outcome. So a CPC1 should be a patient who is independent of their ADLs, has returned to their baseline activities, is back to their home, their family, and on a gross level has no neurologic deficits, has completely recovered. A CPC2 should be someone who is able to live independently, is usually someone who has returned to work, but they may have some minor deficits. They may have some peripheral neuropathy. They may have some gait disturbance. They may have some other short-term memory defects or something. Then you get into the bad outcome, CPC3 through 5, and basically those are people who can't live alone, and it's a continuum from 
significant neurologic deficits requiring some assisted care to patients who are in a permanent vegetative state, to patients who are either brain dead or dead. And all patients who are dead are CPC5. So yeah, it's important to clarify that. And basically, it falls into two gross buckets of good versus bad neurologic outcomes. Correct. And I think that's very important because when I speak about it, you know, I tell them those people, at least even if they're CPC2, they're functioning member of society and able to care for themselves and return back with some minor deficit. And that's what the huge impact of that care is in this patient population. Could you go over the ACA study? Because I think that's also a very important study. Yes. So the HACA study or a hypothermia after cardiac arrest study group study um, was a European study. And just for a historic note, the PI on the study was Fritz Sturz, who's uh, in Vienna. And Fritz Sturz was a fellow in Pittsburgh with Peter Saffer, who really is the father of, of hypothermia and critical care medicine in America. And at Pittsburgh, they had used hypothermia clinically in the 60s and had some problems with the implementation of it, um, often related to the fact that they were cooling people down to 30 degrees centigrade, not the 33 or so that we use today. And they saw some of the side effects that we'll talk about later that people worry about, bleeding, bradycardia, hypotension. But Dr. Sturz arranged this study after he went back to Austria from doing his fellowship with, with Dr. Saffer in the 90s. And this was a multi-center study. It's a true randomized trial where patients are brought into the emergency room and then if they meet inclusion criteria, they are randomized to either hypothermia or normothermia. Again, it's out of hospital ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia arrest. So these are patients with arrest caused by a shockable rhythm who are, you know, it's pretty clear are the group of patients who do best post-arrest. And there were 274 patients included in this trial. So it's a significantly larger trial and truly randomized, very similar inclusion and exclusion criteria otherwise as, as the Bernard study. And in this case, instead of using ice packs as Dr. Bernard did, they used a forced cold air cooling system that actually looks impressive if you look at it. It sort of was like a sleeping bag that went around the patient and the cold air would flow through that. However, it was very inefficient. And in reality, about 70% of the patients in the hypothermia arm of the trial also had supplemental ice bags applied to get them to target temperature. The target temperature was reached in an average time that we would consider very slow in uh, 2013, uh, about eight hours or so to target temperature. They did, however, keep them at target temperature for 24 hours. So it's a longer period of cooling, 24 versus the 12 hours in the Bernard study. And then they rewarmed the patient and looked at their neurologic outcomes. There was less attention paid to the mean arterial pressure in this trial than in the trial from Stephen Bernard. Be that as it may, they showed significant improvements in outcome and good neurologic outcomes in the HACA study as well, with good outcomes of 55% in the hypothermia 
group and 39% in the normal thermia group. So a 16% absolute reduction in bad outcomes. And it should be noted that the 39% in the normal thermia group is one of the most impressive survival rates for comatose post-arrest patients that had been reported to date, which suggests that the patients were overall getting a high standard of care in both arms of the trial. One of the other strengths of this trial is that they have six-month follow-up in, in these patients, and they also were powered to truly look at mortality benefit, not just neurologic outcomes benefit, and they did collect a fair amount of data on side effects and complications of hypothermia, such as sepsis, pneumonia, bleeding. And I'm glad that you're bringing that follow-up because even after six months in the ACA study, the follow-up if I'm correct, remained the same. I mean, there was no really changes per se in in their numbers, correct? Correct. One of the things that I think we see is that in general, when patients have especially an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, especially from a shockable rhythm, and people recover from that, their future survival has basically gone back to the close to the point it was before they had their arrest. So um, the vast majority of people who are discharged from the hospital neurologically intact after a, a comatose arrest that was from a shockable rhythm are alive six months later, one year later, three years later. This is a patient population that has a significant life expectancy if you can get them through this, you know, once thought to be basically futile event that they're going through. So like you mentioned, you did mention that this was tried in the 60s, uh, training shock trauma and you know, across the street at John Hopkins, they also tried it back in the 60s. They found that this therapy was way too complex and too difficult to manage. After those two landmark paper were published, mm-hmm. Three years later, hypothermia suddenly appears in the American Heart Association guideline in 2005 as a 2B and then in 2010 as a 1B. Can you give us some of the background of why such a radical change in the ACLS guidelines? So meaning a radical change between the 2005 and the 2010 guidelines? Correct. Right. So just to put it into context a little bit, the landmark studies were published, as you pointed out, in 2002 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then by 2003, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, ILCOR, had published their recommendations that hypothermia be used for comatose post-arrest patients. And then, as you said, those became the recommendations of the American Heart Association in 2005. The reason for the change to 2010, where for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, comatose out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from a shockable rhythm, the reason it became one recommendation is that the people who wrote the recommendations do a worksheet and they analyze all the available data that's come from the prior recommendations up to the present. So, you know, published data from 2005 to 2010. And I think that basically looking at the 
aggregate data from the few meta-analyses that were published, all of the implementation studies, and then large database studies such as the Arish study from Europe and the Hypothermia Network Registry that Nicholas Nielsen published in ACT Anesthesiology Scandinavia back in 2009, that when you combine all that data, they felt that the, the strength of evidence was stronger than it had been in 2005 when they made the initial recommendation. So they, they increased the level of recommendation for shockable out-of-hospital rhythms. And then for cardiac arrests occurring in other locations, specifically in hospital, and for arrests from other rhythms, they kept it a 2B recommendation. And, you know, some people would argue that maybe it should have become a 2A recommendation at that point, but that's what they left it. And I think that's the rationale for it. There have been no other randomized controlled trials of hypothermia versus normal thermia that have been completed and published since the landmark studies. Correct. And I just want to take two seconds to contrast this care to my residents. They focus so much on the medication in ACLS. And I tell them that, you know, there's not a single drug in ACLS that has a 1B recommendation. That's correct, right? Correct. So since the data of Bernard and Aka, there hasn't been a new trial that I'm not familiar with? There has not been one that's published. There's an ongoing trial in Europe that Hans Freiberg is one of the primary investigators for, and that's comparing 36 degrees to 33 degrees. So just a little bit of hypothermia or controlled low-end normal thermia to the most accepted target temperature that is used in clinical protocols around the world. And that study is ongoing, is a fairly large study. I believe it's going to be in the neighborhood of 1,200 patients or so. And it is, from what I understand, well into its patient enrollment phase. Great. I'm very excited to see the result because I'm a strong believer that I'm not really sure if that we know the exact temperature. Is it preventing parexia fever or is it the actual cool temperature, you know, that's protective? So that would be a very interesting study to see the results. Right. And there's no question that that's an interesting study to see the results of. I think the concern that some people have about that study is the question of whether many of the mechanisms that are being modulated by hypothermia, whether many of these mechanisms will be modulated by a temperature of 36 degrees. Some of the experimental data would suggest that it's more in the neighborhood of 34 to 35 degrees where some of these things start to become modulated. So it's going to be interesting to see how that study plays out. And certainly the other issue that you're raising is that pyrexia, hyperthermia is bad for the neurologically injured brain. That's been clearly shown in some of the stroke research. And also post-hypothermia, pyrexia is in general appears to be a bad thing for uh, the patient who has been just treated with hypothermia. Most 
institutions will in their hypothermia protocols aggressively try to maintain normal thermia after a patient's rewarmed. And there's been several publications on that. We had a publication that Marion Leary was the lead author on. There's a recent publication just in resuscitation this month from the Pittsburgh group. And there's been a few others looking at post-arrest pyrexia. In our protocol at my hospital, I've extended it up to 72 hours to prevention of pyrexia, because I do believe that it's really important that we carry it all the way up to 72 hours. Yes, I would agree with that. So just for our listeners, I think it's important that we look and again, just summarize the criteria or the indication for this therapy. So far, we've talked about VFib. So far, we talked about VTAC arrest. There's been some published paper talking about other rhythm. Could you go over some of the inclusion criterias? Sure. So I think this is one of those things where it gets very complicated when people drill down into the details and you know, a sort of a simple overview is often important for people to hear. The way we think about this in our program at Penn is that if you have a patient, and right now I'll be mostly talking about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, but you could extrapolate this to in-hospital arrest as well. You have a patient who had good neurologic function prior to their arrest. They're out working or they're at home or there's someone who's interacting with with others and then they have a sudden cardiac arrest that appears to be of cardiac etiology, whether it's a ventricular fibrillation arrest, a pulseless ventricular tachycardia arrest or arrest from a non-shockable rhythm. And then after they have return of spontaneous circulation, that person's neurologically injured, then Grossly, that's the group of people that we're looking for to enroll into a hypothermia protocol. So the first question is, what do I mean by neurologically injured? We get simple on this. If the person is not following commands and can't respond appropriately, then we consider that person neurologically injured. Now, if they're close to doing that, then we might give them a little bit of time to sort this out. But most people fall into either these one-shock wonders, they had a shockable arrest, they get some chest compressions and one or two defibrillations, and they come into the emergency department saying, what happened to me, doc? And that person you know is not neurologically injured. Now, there may be subtle neurocognitive deficits that we just haven't become sophisticated enough to know about in those people. Or they fall into the category of patients who are intubated or need to be intubated, and they have a Glasgow coma score of you know, three or four or five or six, those people are profoundly injured. And it's the rare person who's a nine or 10 and you want to try and sort them out. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, what excludes someone from a protocol? There's very little that we use that excludes someone from a protocol. If someone has limitations on their care such that they, uh, you know, didn't want to be intubated, they don't want aggressive care, then that's one thing right there. And then if the person, sometimes depending upon the degree of progression of a terminal illness, like if it's someone that you know, maybe has very, very end-stage congestive heart failure and was starting to go into a hospice program or something, talking about that, that's someone we would maybe take some time thinking about what are the goals of, of this therapy or someone with widely metastatic cancer. But, you know, some of those patients still have 
several years life expectancy, they're still getting aggressive therapy. So we would still try to get that person back to the point where they were before they had their arrest. There's really very few other true exclusion criteria that we would use. If someone is actively bleeding and we can't control that hemorrhage, it's from a non-compressible site or it's from coagulopathy, that we can't reverse, then those are people that we might not treat with hypothermia. And then, you know, the non-shockable rhythms, you really have to search for why did this person arrest? And, you know, we we will, in most cases, do a CAT scan of the head, making sure it's not a subarachnoid hemorrhage or some other bleed in the head. But we don't have many exclusion criteria. Some institutions have cardiogenic shock as an exclusion criterion. We started out with that as an exclusion criterion. And I think as we became more comfortable with the therapy and understood the therapy more, we realized that hypothermia is actually good for cardiogenic shock and probably the balance between oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption is improved with hypothermia and papers started coming out that showed good outcomes in patients with cardiogenic shock who are aggressively managed with early PCI along with intrauteric balloon pumps and hypothermia like the paper from Dr. Hobdens over in Oslo. So all of that combined to not have that as an exclusion criterion for us. We treat end-stage renal disease patients, we treat patients of all rhythms, and we extrapolate this to inpatient arrests. As long as the arrest is something that seems to be from a reversible cause, if, if someone has profound septic shock and they're on four vasopressors, then they arrest and they have return of spontaneous circulation. Uh, you know, that's someone you say, you know, there's other things that really need to be treated in this patient. But if someone's in the hospital for a pneumonia admission, they're getting better and then they have a VF arrest, how is that patient any different from a, a patient who had an arrest at home? So that's sort of how we think about it. Right. And I'm glad you touched on this because residents want numbers. And two days ago, I have a 65-year-old male who had a V-fib arrest, came in with an ST segment elevation, a STEMI, that was intubated in the field preoperatively. And you know, my resident says, well, the patient is able to follow simple command, is alert. The patient was able to open his eyes to verbal command, was able to squeeze the hand. And she's like, well, I don't think the patient meets criteria. And I was like, patient is intubated, patient at a V-fib arrest that was significant. It was 20 minutes going to the cath lab. I says, you know, this therapy is really not dangerous. It's really no danger. And, and I opted to continue hypothermia. Some of the studies focuses on a on the GCS. Some of the recommendation, they say GCS less than six, GCS less than eight. This patient had a GCS of 11T intubated I didn't feel he was the patient that woke up and said, hey, hello, how are you? You know, pulled his tube out and he was, was fine. This patient was still, I felt, out of it. Yeah, you know, so I'm not at the bedside. That's a little bit of a tough case just because it does sound like the person has a Glasgow motor score of six, so they are following commands. I think the point that you're driving home and I would completely agree with it, is that in the, the hands of clinicians who have done this therapy frequently, the risks of 24 hours of therapeutic hypothermia followed by a period of gradual rewarming is minimal. And the side effects that occur and the complications that occur are almost always easily manageable. So 
the clinician should err on the side of treating someone that appears to have a neurologic injury. And this guy might fall exactly into that category of these people that have subtle neurologic, neurocognitive deficits at six months that he wouldn't have if we treated with hypothermia. I think you can't be faulted for the approach you took in that patient. I think you also couldn't be faulted for saying, you know, we're going to start cooling this guy, but we're going to put him on some propofol, an agent that we can shut off fairly quickly. And maybe after the cat's over, we're going to reassess him and see whether he wakes up or not. We've actually had that happen in a few patients. I, I personally fall sort of closer to where you are. Like whenever we stop hypothermia because the person seems so good, I'm always really worried that they're going to have an injury, some short-term memory loss, something that I feel like we could have treated. And so those patients, I really uh, bother me until I know they're okay. But the point is exactly right that, you know, you need to assess these people closely and then you need to really decide is this person going to uh, recover or not and are they demonstrating to me that they're completely recovered and if there's any question about that then the person should get treated with hypothermia yeah i, I agree 100 percent. i would like to move on to the nuts and bolts of hypothermia if you would take maybe a couple seconds we're using right now surface cooling because that's what my hospital provided. We looked at the invasive catheter for cooling. Is there any new data out there that shows any difference in non-invasive surface cooling versus invasive cooling? Right. So I think that's an important question, especially for institutions that are in the process of setting up a hypothermia protocol in a lot of the hypothermia teaching we do at some of the training institutes we run and stuff, we always try and emphasize that the therapy is significantly more important than the mode of delivery of the therapy. And all of the equipment out there, first of all, none of the commercially available equipment has an indication for use for the delivery of therapeutic hypothermia to comatose post-arrest patients from the FDA. And that's a, you know, that's an issue that is holding back the dissemination of therapy. And it's not the fault of the cooling companies. They've tried to get that. It's It's been the FDA's interpretation of the randomized trials and the need for more data. But the therapy is infinitely more important than the, the method of delivering it. All of the cooling companies that are putting commercially available equipment out there, surface or intravascular, provide excellent products and they all have their advantages and disadvantages. There has yet to be a trial that has shown superiority of surface cooling versus intravascular cooling or vice versa. The biggest study that was done was a French study that compared surface cooling with one of the most popular surface cooling units to a, a very effective intravascular catheter. It showed no differences in survival, neurologic outcomes, and also no difference in time to target temperature. An intravascular catheter, once it's placed and the device is actually cooling a patient, may cool patients somewhat quicker than surface cooling does, but there's the delay time to placing it. So it might be that the optimal cooling approach is ice bags, chilled saline, surface cooling, and a catheter, and then you maintain them with the catheter once you've gotten them to target temperature. The other question that is sort of linked to that is, does it matter how quickly you get to target temperature? And 
I think experimental data would suggest that it does, that the sooner you get to target temperature, the better, and that, in fact, if you could get down below 36 or 35 intra-arrest during the time of low flow state, you might prevent some of the ischemia injury and some of the initial reperfusion injury when return of spontaneous circulation occurs. And I think this has been one of the drivers for EMS systems getting so deeply involved in pre-hospital cooling. But I think the reality that's played out in large databases and in most large studies is that there hasn't been really strong data for how quickly you get the patient cooled and it being associated with better outcomes. And it's a very complicated question because the, the, truly the easiest patients to cool are the ones who are neurologically devastated and have no ongoing source of heat production. So those patients you can cool very quickly. And in some senses, the patients that are a bit of a more struggle to cool are the ones that have early sign of, of potential good neurologic recovery. So what we really need is some kind of way of measuring how hard did we work to cool them and then how quickly did we get them to cool. So the real measure would be we, we did a ton of work to cool them, but we got them cool quick and then that would be the optimal thing. So it's very complicated. It's definitely a very complicated way and, and even to randomize a trial like this is even more complicated. We hope you've enjoyed part one of this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. In part two, the discussion will continue with the nuts and bolts of hypothermia, addressing shivering, major physiological effects, rewarming, and the future of hypothermia. For more information about AAEM and to access part two of this series, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next month as Dr. Farsi will discuss more issues of relevance for emergency physicians.